Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association. I'm Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and we have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. If you have a project or publication that you'd like to discuss on the podcast, I would be delighted to hear from you. You can email me at press at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 21st of August and this is episode number 28. It is still holiday time and we are taking a seasonal break until September. Until we resume our normal round of podcast interviews, I will share with you some of the talks given to my local branch, the Antrim and Down branch of the WFA, over the last few months. In this episode, Dr William Butler from the University of Kent talks on Can You Any Longer Resist the Call? Military Recruiting in Ireland, 1916. This talk was part of the branch's SOM conference held in October last year. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you very much, and thank you very much for the uh, for the kind introduction. As I sort of say, the book uh, on the Irish amateur military tradition is out later this month. As and I and as um, I sort of I learn uh, everything uh, I do uh, from Dr. Bowman, who would say it's an ideal stocking filler, of course. Um, which um, that broken record. Um, but thank you, and thank you very much for uh, inviting me here today. And obviously, I'm going to be talking um, about military recruiting in Ireland in 1916 um, and I've sort of entitled it Can You uh, Any Longer re- uh, Resist the Call which is um, sort of taken from this uh, poster which was actually published in 1915 um, and I mean by 1916 I think the, the sort of the basic answer is that, uh, that yes a lot of people could resist the call um, in, in Ireland um, that's not where I'm going to finish my lecture today. I'm not going to sort of my talk today. I won't just stop at that point. Um, but but in short, uh, sort of 1916 in terms of recruiting doesn't actually uh, give me a whole lot um, to go with. So a lot of the, the material, a lot of the things I'm going to be talking about today, really lead up to 1916. I think in in many ways. I think um, it sort of sets the scene, uh, the the situation in Ireland, the recruiting situation in Ireland in late 1914 and throughout 1915, sets the scene for that, um, perhaps, I suppose, failure of recruiting by, by 1916, uh, particularly by, uh, obviously, the British authorities. But just to start with 1916, on the 14th of January 1916, Lord Wimborne, the then Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, presented his report on recruiting in Ireland to Lord Kitchener, uh, who was the Secretary of State for War. In it, Wimborne stated that upon the outbreak of war in August 1914, a total of 51,046 Irishmen were serving in the British Army, either as regulars or as reservists. By January 1916, this number had reached 145,869, not including Irishmen who had enlisted in Great Britain or indeed anywhere else uh, in the Empire. Throughout the entire year of 1916, only an additional 19,057 men enlisted in Ireland into the British Army. So fewer than the 20,000 or so who had enlisted in London alone between January and April 1916, and that with conscription, Military Service Act sort of looming over them. Um, And also only two-thirds the amount enlisted in Great Britain in a single day in September 1914. So 19,057 for 1916. 
Now, obviously, the Military Service Act, the introduction of compulsory service, was not extended to Ireland in 1916. And in particular, the authorities felt that it would have to reinforce the garrison in the, in the country to such an extent that the benefits would be negated by the sheer number of men required to enforce it. Thus, voluntary recruitment remained in Ireland for the duration of the war. Why, though, was recruiting still so low in all areas of Ireland, particularly from a region which had historically provided so many men to the British Army? An obvious answer might be the Easter Rising. But, as I hope to show you during the course of this talk, uh, the foundations were set long before Easter 1916. Really, the British authorities had carried out recruiting efforts from the word go in a largely uncoordinated and ad hoc manner, especially in comparison um, to Great Britain, and I'll talk a little bit about that as well. And this ultimately led to uh, a failure for, for much of the war. There were, of course, occasional bright spots and some attempts at coordination, which I'll also talk about, including by Lord Wimborne uh, himself. But these, on all occasions, fell well short of requirements. And it only took a crisis of rather, rather large proportions to stop conscription being introduced in Ireland uh, in 1918. So, like I say, what I'd like to start off uh, by doing uh, is talking about some of the foundations for these problems. And I'll start by, by looking at the outbreak of war up to, and then up to March 1915, um, briefly. I'm sure of you, uh, all of you are, are fully aware and more knowledgeable than I am uh, about the third home rule crisis and sort of political wrangling um, which occurred upon the outbreak of war. So I won't go into any uh, real detail here about that, other than to say that in uh, Ireland there were no official coordinated efforts for recruitment that covered the whole country when war broke out. The Ulster Volunteer Force, of course, carried out its own recruiting initiatives and largely contribute to the high number of enlistments in August and September 1914. But there was nothing on any larger scale than that. At the same time uh, as the sort of political manoeuvring and controversy uh, in Ireland, however, a national recruiting effort was being carried out across Great Britain under the guidance of the Parliamentary Recruiting Committee. And one of its, its primary aims was to set up campaigns which, campaigns which suited regional circumstances. Up until the end of 1915, the Parliamentary Recruiting Commission, uh, Committee sorry, issued no fewer <coughs> than 164 posters, um, as you can see some of them here, um, of various shapes and sizes, which on the whole were fairly generic in content, content appealing to patriotism, duty, but also things like the plight of uh, the women and children of Belgium. And of course the PRC held um, large numbers of meetings and rallies and things like that, but I'll focus on the poster, mainly because it's a nice picture for, to be able to show uh, you today, and I'll, I'll be looking at lots of different posters um, throughout the talk um, today. The PRC, um, though, were told by both Carson and Redmond uh, that their organisation would not be advantageous uh, in Ireland. However, by the beginning of 1915, it was reported that large numbers of literature and posters had been forwarded, forwarded to both Belfast and Dublin. But, again, as a result of a lack of any synchronisation, particularly by um, political leaders in Ireland, these propaganda efforts were largely ineffective. 
For example, no posters during the early months of the war were directed specifically at Irishmen, as they had been to both Scots and Welshmen uh, in um, in uh, Great Britain. And it wasn't until May 1915 that uh, a specific poster di uh, directed at Irishmen um, was actually produced. Partly due to the efforts in Belfast, recruiting in the early few m uh, months of the war largely mirrored many areas of the United Kingdom. And I sort of have this rather, um, ex what I think is an exciting um, graph. Some of you might question that at this point. I, this is a, a graph I managed to put together from um, recruiting um, returns um, that are available at the Public Record Office um, in London. Um, by basically going through these massive hand-drawn spreadsheets of daily um, returns from uh, August 1914 up till April um, 1916. And really what I wanted to show here um, with this graph uh, is this bottom line. This bottom line, uh, this orange line here, um, is the Irish level of recruiting in comparison to other areas of uh, great, uh, the United Kingdom, uh, I should say. So. Um, we obviously have the spike in August, September 1914, but after that, there's a fairly sort of flat line uh, level of recruiting in Ireland, and particularly, certainly not subject to the fluctuations that you get in, in other areas um, of the country as well. Um, so really, what I, what I hope to show is really the, the crux of my argument today, um, is that this, this pretty flat line um, in recruiting in Ireland occurred long before the Easter Rising. I don't believe it was. Sort of the Easter Rising had actually a very minimal impact on, on recruiting numbers into 1916. And this, you know, you, I really can argue that the flatlining began as early as, as October 1914. Um, but that doesn't mean that there weren't efforts to, to try and, and halt that. But if we sort of look at those first um, few months up till April 1915 and look at the percentages of the male population enlisting throughout the whole United Kingdom, it's clear really that Ireland fell well behind except for uh, the areas of Antrim, Armagh and Down, um, which reached really the same levels as many counties in England in these opening months at least anyway, with about 23% of the male population um, joining up. Nowhere else in Ireland fell anywhere near this, though. Most lie sort of laid at about 11% um, of the, the male population, and counties um, of Donegal, Kerry, Roscommon, and Wicklow <coughs> fell as low as 4% of the male population. Now, finally, uh, in early 1915, partly as a result of the continued low recruiting figures, the War Office decided to call upon a proven expert in publishing, marketing and advertising, a civilian named Hedley Labass, a pioneer in recruiting um, propaganda, who's, who was sent to Ireland to re-energise, or, or at least energise recruiting there. Labass had been involved with army recruiting from as early as 1913 and had come up with the five questions to men who have not enlisted, which was a, a massive newspaper campaign. So he was um, the man responsible um, for that um, campaign. He began his work in Dublin, specifically targeting Irish sentiment uh, and formed a small advisory committee principally of uh, newspaper editors uh, and also initiated a leaflet campaign. One Dublin newspaper described the early recruiting activities of Labas in late April 1915, stating that, quote, 
Mr. Labasse, as the Americans would say, is some organiser. He arrived in Dublin about a month ago and took up his quarters in the Shelbourne Hotel. Things were rather quiet in the recruiting way, and we were beginning to wonder whether our stream of much-needed fighting men was going to run dry. Then strange things began to happen. The outside cars plying for hire in our streets were observed to bear the significant legend, Remember Belgium, and Enlist Today. The granite walls of the Liffey became eloquent with printed and highly coloured appeals. The Irish Guards bands descended upon Ireland and a wave of enthusiasm rolled over the country. Labasse remained in Ireland for only five weeks, though his efforts would eventually lead to the creation of the rather catchily titled Central Council for the Organisation of Recruiting in Ireland, or the CCORI. It was, at last, a coordinated attempt to distribute recruiting propaganda, uh, and this propaganda was now directed specifically at, at Irishmen. The idea of this new organisation was to continue and extend the recruiting campaign formulated by Hedley Labasse, aided by tours of the bands of the Irish Guards and the bands of other Irish regiments, and enlisting the support of the council chairman across Ireland. Before the CCORI was created, the only other non-military organisation for recruiting um, in the whole of Ireland was the City and County of Dublin Recruiting Committee, um, which was under the presidency of Lord Meath. Uh, but this organisation had been concerned only with recruiting into the Royal Dublin Fusiliers. So this was the first attempt, at least, of a, of a coordinated um, organisation for recruiting. And as you see, so these four posters are, are four examples of the, the Central Council's um, efforts. Some of them are probably sort of fairly recognisable, um, particularly the, the Irishman Avenged the Lusitania um, example. Um, but these were all created by the Central Council from May 1915 onwards. The Council itself was based in Dublin, but attempted to form local recruiting committees in every rural and urban district in Ireland. It was also responsible for equipping and maintaining travelling recruiting offices, which had attached to them a staff of recruiting and medical officers, sergeants and clerks. In all, it intended to form 300 local recruiting committees across the country designed to promote recruiting through the employment of people of influence in their local area. A directive was also issued which stated that all members of the Royal Irish Constabulary should render full assistance to the council. Importantly, it also tried to stay as much as possible away from party politics. The largest CCRI recruiting meeting was held at Warren Point, County Down, in early July 1915, on the 8th of July. As many as 6,000 people were present, presided over by the Lord Lieutenant. And it's a photograph um, from, the, from the meeting itself. Um, the organisers sought to represent all elements of the political spectrum in Ireland. Messages were read out from the King and Lord Kitchener, who commended the work of the Council. Speeches were also made by Army Generals, a Judge, the Nationalist MP William Redmond, and Sergeant Michael O'Leary VC, who addressed an overflow meeting at the Town Square. Reflecting on the event, the, the head of the CCRI, Sir Henry McLaughlin, stated that the event was an index of the effect of the propaganda carried out and a promise of better things to follow. However, not everyone shared his optimism. 
It was reported that Dr Crozier, uh, the primate of the Church of Ireland, had made a speech in Armagh which purported to doubt the all-island character of the Warren Point meeting. He went on to say that the whole meeting had cost over £1,500, whilst resulting in only six recruits. This caused the council to issue an immediate response in its defence, stating that the object of the meeting was not the immediate enrolment of recruits. The council asserted that, quote, its effect is permeating the most remote parts of the country and stimulating to a livelier sense of their responsibility and to active recruiting work, representatives upon local boards in obscure districts in the province of Ireland. I'm not sure that quotation makes sense, but that's what they said anyway. Um, the declaration that the council was permeating into local boards in obscure districts was perhaps somewhat of an exaggeration. Um, in Tipperary, for example, it's been found by historian John Dennehy that no county committee existed and that many of the recruiting meetings uh, actually held, uh, that were actually held descended into farce because of hecklers uh, in the crowd. And this is a map uh, which is available here at the Public Record Office, in fact. Um, and it's, the, it's the map on the right. I know it's very difficult to see, but those small dots are all of the, the small uh, local recruiting committees that were um, established throughout the country. Um, Dennehy goes on to point out uh, the fact that no committees existed is even more astonishing, given that recruiters in the area had enjoyed support from local nationalist politicians and the clergy. And it's clear that Tipperary was not an <coughs> exception. Exception. So looking at a supplement to Irish Life magazine, so this is, this is taken directly from um, Irish Life magazine published in October 1915, it's found that only 19 county recruiting committees had been formed in the 32 counties of Ireland. Six of these had been formed, perhaps unsurprisingly, in Ulster, and only 12 in the remaining 23 counties. Moreover, committees were more commonly found in urban areas, such as um, Ennis, or in Limerick, or Omer. And again, these were more commonly found, again, in Ulster, uh, with more than half of all local committees in Ireland being situated there. And it was the rural district councils which were the biggest problems, especially in the south. No such committees existed at all um, in the counties Kerry, Wexford or Sligo in addition to Tipperary. So although there may be dots on the map, it doesn't mean they say that they existed in really but name, uh, only in name, didn't actually um, do anything. The province of Munster only had six rural district council committees um, and only five had been created in Connaught. Uh, two areas which had before the war been fairly re fruitful um, recruiting districts. Other than attempts to form committees and the staging of large meetings, by far the most important method of recruiting propaganda utilised by the council was the recruiting poster. And I'll go back to the, um, these four examples. As I previously mentioned, many of the older posters had, posters had been fairly generic in their content, and the council looked to remedy this. Uh, an early poster published by the council depicted Sergeant Michael O'Leary um, of the Irish Guards, who had been awarded the Victoria Cross for capturing two German machine gun posts by himself. And this was just one of a number of posters published from April to May 1915 that outlined the historical heroism and fighting spirit uh, of the Irish. One other such poster stated, don't spoil a good fight for want of men to win it, 
while another shows a picture of soldiers from the home nations of England, Wales, Scotland and Ireland with the question, who can beat these plucky four? Other themes were designed specifically with Irishmen in mind. The role of women, both in Ireland and Belgium, was an important one, and in many of the posters um, sort of included captions such as, Have you any women folk worth defending? Remember the women of Belgium. Of course, the most famous poster published by the council was Irishman Avenge the Lusitania, which again looked at showing the plight of innocent women and children. The sinking of the Lusitania is an important subject in this context, particularly um, for propaganda purposes, um, as given uh, the close proximity in which the ship was sunk to Ireland, um, really giving a powerful memory um, to those in the area and one pounced upon by propagandists in an area where recruiting had been poor. These methods did little to help though and when it ceased to operate in the middle of October 1915 at an expense of a little over £25,000 in a period of five and a half months it had recruited approximately 40,000 men. As a result, the authorities remained um, really unhappy with the numbers of recruits coming from Ireland. And so a second organisation um, was established, the Department of Recruiting in Ireland. And this occurred not without controversy, as the Central Council was disbanded without the prior knowledge of its organisers or its employees. In a letter to Sir Henry McLaughlin, as I said, the head of the Central Council, A.A. Astor, the Council Secretary, summed up this coup in writing to McLaughlin, stating, quote, The announcement in this morning's press marks the culminating point of perhaps the biggest and most carefully engineered blunder that has yet been perpetrated in Ireland in connection with the war. Until today, I had hoped that there would have been sufficient political sanity among those who intrigued so successfully to wreck the recruiting council to have approached you as to taking some prominent part in the new organisation. The omission of even a personal word of thanks for the work you have done would have been remarkable if we were not fully aware of the discreditable tactics which have been adopted by the wreckers. They are determined, apparently, to take full advantage of the knowledge that you will not compromise recruiting by taking any public action. In addition, a close friend of McLaughlin, the former MP and now Army Lieutenant and active recruiter Tom Kettle, felt a similar stab in the back, writing to him, quote, I don't know what your opinion is, but I regard the suppression of the CCRRI as a mean, ungrateful, official advertising plan to gather the fruits of your work and reward you with a spit. The Council's replacement, the Department of Recruiting in Ireland, was formed after a council, uh, sorry, not a council, a conference um, had been held at the Vice Regal Lodge in Dublin in October 1915 and began operating on the 30th of October, carrying out its tasks until the end of March 1916. We finally will get into 1916 in, in a moment, I promise you. Different to this, uh, the CCORI, it was officially administered directly from the War Office under the directorship of the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, Lord Wimborne, and it sought to reorganise the local committees which had already been formed. They set about appointing provincial directors and county controllers and strengthened and expanded the machinery for attestation, its primary task being to recruit in Ireland for the sole purpose of maintaining the 52 Irish battalions in the field. 
by this time it had been recognised that anything above this was well beyond the reality of the situation. Upon opening the conference, Lord Wimborne, of course, expressed ritualistic thanks to the CCORI, labelling them as a group of sensible men who had carried out great sustained and excellent work, uh, and bringing in many recruits. However, he felt that the utility of the body had become exhausted, and that there was a feeling that new methods were re required to attract the necessary recruits. He made two possible suggestions that it might be desirable to use personal influence to obtain good results, and that postal channels should be used, and even door-to-door -door canvassing should be utilised. He noted that such methods had not previously been exploited, though they had been used by the Parliamentary Recruiting Committee in Britain for over a year before, um, before the meeting. Other attendees were then invited to speak and express any views or ideas that they had in order to improve the situation. The Lord Mayor of Dublin, James Gallagher, continued the criticism of certain classes of men, and this is where you get certain targeting of specific groups, particularly those in agriculture, and for the Lord Mayor of Dublin, particularly people like drapers or shop assistants, who it was felt had not been coming forward in any significant numbers at all. Um, these were uh, the groups of men um, who were, were not uh, doing their bit, if, if you like. So um, James Gallagher highlighted that they were not forthcoming, the, the drapers and shop assistants, because they thought themselves better than ordinary soldiers. He suggested that to remedy this, a commercial corps specifically for this class of men should be formed, arguing that the authorities had no hope of obtaining them in any other way. The Lord Mayor of Belfast, Sir Crawford McCulloch, then took up Wimborne's idea of utilising postal channels. He thought that advertising of any kind was good, and that the post office would reach a section of the population that newspapers would not. He felt that it was necessary to create military air about the place, and that the post should be freely utilised, the postmen were there, and the cost of the postage would go back to the government. Additionally, he thought that public meetings were useless by themselves. Quote, they should do something that would touch the individual. The poster campaign, so this is the, the Department of Recruiting's, um, or some of their um, poster campaign, um, was no, uh, by no means as prolific as the Central Council's. Um, but they did use a number of other methods in order to try and attract more recruits. There was an attempt to form local canvassing committees, so for the door-to-door -door canvassing, which ideally would consist of a local priest, the secretary of a political society, a returning invalided soldier, and a publican who, quote, is almost always a good fellow. True. Um, something else which had also been employed in the United Kingdom uh, and used in particular by the PRC in Wales was the use of bilingual recruiting leaflets. The leaflets were issued and posted to all Irish households, in addition to the letters already addressed to men of military age. This initiative went ahead despite official concerns that using such a leaflet would lead to the military authorities treating the use of Irish as an offence under the Defence of the Realm Act. Such, such concerns were dismissed by the reply that the only risk that the readers of the leaflet ran were that they might thereby be induced to undertake a national and patriotic duty. 
One of the least successful attempts to try and obtain recruits was the continued use of military bands uh, and the tours of those military bands across the country. Such tours had been steadily declining or had um, steadily been declining in their returns from uh, about the spring of 1915. One of 24 men of the Connaught Rangers and Michael O'Leary uh, travelled around uh, County Leitrim uh, for a nine-day period, for example, and obtained just one recruit. <coughs> the biggest focus of the DRA's efforts, though, was in agricultural districts, and <coughs> sort of explains the Farmers of Ireland Join Up and Defend Your um, Possessions uh, poster in particular. In Wimborne's report of January 1916 that I mentioned earlier, he stated that, quote, the physical difficulties of making an impression on a scattered population of conservative tendencies still prevail, but signs are not waning that the farming classes are awakening to their responsibilities in this direction, and the formation of farmers' battalions has come within the sphere of practical realisation. This encouragement in agricultural districts was carried out largely by what is best described as scaremongering. For example, at a meeting of one recruiting committee, it was stated that the body of a German uh, soldier had been found, uh, together with a plan and location of a farm in Ireland, which was to be t given to him at the end of the war. This theme was also taken up at a widely reported conference in February 1916, attended by John Redmond, where the issue of this um, agricultural recruiting, uh, particularly of farmers and farmers' sons, was addressed. The conference was attended by representative, representatives of the largely agricultural um, districts of Meath, West Meath, Kings and Queens counties, Longford, um, etc. Having a uh, uh, excused the low-level ag agricultural uh, recruiting, and although believing that more could be done, Redmond stated that if Germany should win the war, the farmers of this country will be beggared. They will be dispossessed of their land and turned again, uh, turn again into paupers and slaves. None of this re uh, rhetoric, though, in the winter of 1915 and 1916, nor any of the accompanying propaganda, did much, if anything, to improve the level of agricultural. Um, recruiting, and again, just another sort of exciting table um, that I put together. So this just shows the percentage of the male population um, who had um, joined up by January 1916. As you can see, Ulster Ware um, in front, um, in comparison to to other areas, other districts uh, in Ireland. So to properly get into 1916, uh, finally. Um, as has been mentioned, the primary task of the DRI was to try and obtain as many recruits as was necessary to maintain the 52 Irish battalions in the field. And in order to, order to achieve this, an average weekly supply of 1,100 rec recruits was required. From the commencement of the campaign into December 1915, a seven-week period, an average of 1,063 recruits per week were obtained, reaching a total of 7,444. However, quickly into 1916, after the initial uplift of recruiting results as a result of the DRI, it was taking the authorities a month to reach the weekly quota required to uh, maintain the 52 battalions. And this reached a peak of 1,815 men in the month of February 1916. Again, it was suggested uh, in early 1916 that a commercial battalion should be formed to attract clerks and shop assistants. Uh, but again, this really sort of fell by the wayside, really. 
Contrary to Wimborne's views, um, RIC reports stated that for almost all of the agricultural districts, recruiting was still very poor. It was said that the farming classes would not enlist unless compelled, and the supply of the voluntary recruits would become exhausted. There was not even believed to be an ideological reason for these men not enlisting, and it was quoted that the fact is times were never as good. Farmers were never so well off, and some retailers and dealers are making fortunes. An example of this sort of situation that recruiters faced was reflected upon by Frank Laird, who was a member of the Dublin University Officers Training Corps, who recalled how, in early 1916, he accompanied a recruiting tour of counties Wicklow and Kildare, along with a band of eight men of the Third Hussars. He described that the recruiting tactic was as follows. Our mode of operation was to arrive on a fair day or on a Sunday after Mass. The band paraded a few times up and down and then the speaking began from a car or a couple of farms. The band got hold of likely converts and drank them in adjacent public houses to fire their martial ardour. In spite, however, of all the music, eloquence and good liquor that was used in these weeks, the results were almost nil. The rustics of Kildare and Wicklow, who remained at home in January 1916, had apparently made up their minds to stay there for the duration. Our promoters returned from one meeting, flushed with the acquisition of three recruits, but when they came to be examined by the doctors, one had been in the asylum, one had heart disease, and one was blind in one eye. To, just to briefly go back to the economic reasons um, as to why men were not enlist, enlisting. So in June 1915, John Dillon told the House of, uh, House of Commons that men were being offered two pounds and 10 shillings to work in England, together with the assurance that they could not be called up for military service. At the time, skilled workers in Belfast, for example, were earning 35 to 45 shillings a week, and the rate of army pay was far lower. A married private's basic pay was seven shillings a week, and the separation allowance paid to his wife, even if she had three children, was only 20 shillings a week. By October, the newspaper The Wicklow People wrote of the exodus of the labourers, and in January 1916, the paper explained that adding overtime and Sunday allowances, munitions workers in England were earning wages three to four times higher than they could at home. In mid-1916, the IRC County Inspector in Donegal wrote that it was common knowledge that even labourers were earning two to three pounds per week in munitions factories and that there were also canvassers from Scotland who were trying to recruit uh, men for that munitions work. As the inspector concluded, these inducements placed the army in a very poor light. The exact number of those who left Ireland to work in Britain during the war can only be guessed at. A large number of inconsistent statistics were banded about during this period. Redmond himself in January 1916 reckoned that 40,000 men uh, were working in munitions, including those who had gone to Great Britain. Two months earlier, uh, one newspaper wrote of 35,000 men who had already left Ireland for industrial work in Great Britain. By April 1916, another newspaper claimed that no less than 80,000 had departed for, mun for munitions and kindred employment. Officially, though, the Ministry of Munitions estimated that something not short of 50,000 Irish people were engaged in munitions work in Ireland and Britain by April 1916. By the end of March 1916, county inspectors across Ireland typically, typically talked of recruiting being very slack, very bad, very slow, very unsatisfactory, very meagre or very poor. Where reports were longer, they were no more optimistic. For example, 
Carlo, very little recruiting in the month. Claire, poor due to sons of farmers standing aloof. Uh, Cork West Riding, recruiting campaign actively carried out throughout the riding by the Central Recruiting Committee, results more than disappointing. Meath, predictably at a standstill. Uh, Waterford, noticeably worse than last month through the whole county. And this is echoed um, throughout the country. And really what that is what is, is striking is about the consistency in those reports. The reasons given were little changed from those cited throughout 1915. The pool of re- potential voluntary recruits, i.e. largely urban labourers, was becoming exhausted. Farmers' sons, farm labourers and shop boys showed little or no inclination to join up. What was not reported despite this was any real slump of public support for the Allies. Rather, it was restated that this support was still evident, but that it would not translate into enlistment. According to the Roscommon County Inspector, writing at the beginning of April 1916, quote, The people of the county are pleased, pleased to hear of the Allies' success, but are not sufficiently concerned in anything outside their business, namely cattle and sheep rearing and dealing, to give any help by encouraging their young men to join the army. Now, the response of the authorities to the Easter Rising and its aftermath was to stop from the end of April 1916 through to mid-1918 active, organised recruiting to the Crown forces uh, in much of Ireland. The recruiting authorities, as described by the historian Patrick Callan, concentrated on schemes which are unlikely to raise the political temperature and avoided vigorous campaigning uh, at all levels. Non-combatant Uh, opportunities were stressed, welfare organisations to support serving soldiers promoted and recruiting meetings largely discontinued. By September 1916 the Army Council realised that as recruiting in Ireland had virtually ceased the maintenance of the three Irish divisions had become impossible and so steps were being carried out so as to reduce them. A number of suggestions were put forward including allowing the divisions to gradually (coughs) die out to allow Irishmen not in Irish divisions to transfer freely to them, or to amalgamate the, th- uh, the 16th and 36th divisions, and even to introdu- introduce compulsory service in Ireland. It was decided, however, to reinforce all three divisions with Englishmen so as to bring them up to their establishment. It would seem the British authorities had all but given up uh, on the idea of men of Ireland coming forward in any more significant numbers. So just briefly to sort of mention, into, go into 1918 and to, to conclude, really. Until well into 1918, there was no recovery in, in Irish recruiting from those debts plumbed in the first month of 1916. Um, all of Ireland remained exempted from military conscription, as it had been since January 1916. For both Britain and Ireland, the level of slaughter and stalemate in the war attained a whole new level, both on land and at sea. This was only too apparent to the Irish populations as extensive casualty lists were published day after day or week after week in the national and local press. A great many eligible men had already enlisted and the army still had to compete with the burgeoning demands of the war economy. Police reports throughout 1916 and 17 noted the departure of groups of local men. Thus, for example, in one county the inspector reported May 1916, large numbers of men have gone to Wales for munitions work. September 1916, large numbers were still going over to work in Britain. 
September 1917, over 100 labourers had left in the month to work in munitions in England. And October 1917, a fairly large number of labourers had left in the month to work in England. Again, these are just examples and fairly consistent across the period. The contrast really was stark. Um, and almost um, throughout the period, the comments were unremittingly gloomy. It, recruiting was poor, bad, or pr practically nil. And in Kerry, for example, it was reported that in the whole of 1916, it had generated just 153 recruits in the whole year. Um, and that's probably the, the worst of all the examples we, I could give, but it sort of gives you a, an idea. By the spring of 1918, the British recruitment policy was again in crisis. The country was, or at best was close to, its uh, manpower ceiling, and the launch of the German Ludendorff offensive was creating disastrous losses for the Allies on the Western Front. The government decided that in order to obtain more men for military service, the age limit needed to be increased, and also military service, uh, compulsory military service needed to be extended to Ireland. At this stage, the situation spiralled out of, out of control, an intense uh, political campaign ensued across Ireland um, and uh, effectively conscription was defeated. Um, Lord French, who was by this point the new Lord Lieutenant, was left to govern in a state of manageable disorder and by June 1918 decided to make a final appeal to the men of Ireland to come forward voluntarily. In his proclamation, he appealed for a further 50,000 recruits by the 1st of October 1918, believing that it would be much better to have one man voluntarily than three men compelled to join. Thus, the final uh, council, the Irish Recruiting Council, uh, came into being. And again, these are a few examples of some of their posters uh, in particular. And really, they focused, sort of changed the focus from uh, looking at patriotism and duty to that of a practical nature. How could the military be of use to an individual once the war was over by teaching a skill or trade useful in peacetime. Some things could not change, however, and by the beginning of September, only 6,349 recruits had been obtained. Recruiting had picked up sharply during August, which rose from 800 in July to 2,962 by the end of the following month. And following this, during the months of September, Nearly 3,500 recruits were raised. In total, 11,000 enlisted um, during the RRC's campaign. Ultimately, though, the work and experience of the RRC was well, uh, as well as the other recruiters uh, during the preceding years of the war, are best, up, are best summed up by Lord French in a letter written to members of the Irish Recruiting Council the day after the armistice was signed in November 1918. French wrote that, quote, Judged by your actual results, your labours would appear to have borne but little fruit. For you, like the armies in France for a long period of the war, have been, have been faced with an impregnable wall of opposition. Thank you very much. <laughs>